your trusted source for news and analysis about Chicago White Sox prospects and player development, covering the Major League Baseball draft and international market, plus the action in Kannapolis, Winston-Salem, Birmingham, and Charlotte. This is the Future Sox Podcast with your hosts, Mike Rankin and James Fox. And welcome to another episode of the Future Sox Podcast. My name is Mike Rankin. I'll be your host, James Fox, alongside us. We're back. Thanks for staying patient with us, you loyal listeners of the Future Sox Podcast. We delayed this episode because there was a lot of Major League Baseball stuff going on in the offseason, and we wanted to wait because we wanted to cover it. And that includes the draft lottery, first ever. Pretty cool. Rule 5 draft also just occurred as we are recording this podcast, so we'll get a reaction as the White Sox selected Right-handed pitcher Nick Avila from the San Francisco Giants. He has an opportunity to win a spot on the active roster this year. If the White Sox decide not to carry him on the 26-man, he gets sent back to the Giants. So we'll get into that discussion here shortly. Also need to mention that Marco Patti is going to be recognized, and we should shine a light on the success that he's had dealing with the international dealings in the White Sox front office. He, he definitely deserves a lot of credit, so James has info on that as we'll get to it shortly. A lot of things to cover here, James. Baseball America updated their top 10 in the White Sox farm system. Positive updates across the board on key prospects, especially one that I'd love to touch on uh, later on in the show. So please stick with us. So let's get right into it here. The winter meetings concluding. The White Sox are kind of hanging back and watching the rest of Major League Baseball do their thing, making signings, and we're going to go into more detail about where the White Sox stand in the offseason on our next episode, which will drop on its regularly scheduled Tuesday next week. But currently, let's talk about where they stand on the roster and how it impacts what they may decide to do moving forward. And that begins with the Rule 5 draft. We'll get to the draft lottery here shortly, but first I want to start with the Rule 5 because I said Nick Avila, right-handed pitcher, San Francisco Giants comes on over, and 25-year-old right-handed pitcher Nick Avila maxed out at A so far in his career. Early impressions, James, what do you think? Uh, seems fine, I guess. I mean, you know, you see that he has ties to... Ethan Katz, when Ethan Katz was the the minor league pitching coordinator in San Francisco in 2019, that's when he was selected. He was a you know he was a 26 round pick that year. I mean, I guess like right away you look at you look at the numbers like in Double A last year, 27 innings pitched, he averaged about a K per nine or a K per inning, nine you know nine strikeouts per nine, 133 ERA. The WHIP, I mean, it is a you know it's a mid 90s fastball and a sinker, so you know they they like their sinker ballers. He was very good in high A as well. It seems like he started earlier in his career, converted to relief last year. So look, I mean, it's a free flyer. He, you got to carry him on your forty man. He'll go to big league spring training and try to earn uh, a job. I'm guessing him and you know Jose Ruiz is you know one of the last spots in that bullpen. We talk about that thirteen thirteen rule all the time. So he'll get an opportunity to uh, make the White Sox out of spring training, and if he does not, he returns to the San Francisco Giants organization. That's why I kind of you know I kind of like I think the Rule Five draft is interesting because it it's just you know it gives you a, a chance to just like add a free body that you would just like have to send back if it doesn't work like. I get there's teams with full 40-man rosters who who can't really do it, but I mean, a team like the White Sox, when you're 
I think their roster was at 36 and, you know, I think there's plenty of guys that could be removed from that roster. Like I, uh, I just, you know, I'm not terribly surprised that they made a selection, but the White Sox do weird things. I, you know, I wrote, I wrote up a preview. I thought, you know, it was a good opportunity to add an outfielder since Luis Robert is their only outfielder, but they went with a pitcher and it seems like a, uh, a fine idea. Yeah. I think it's a good note to mention the relationship Ethan Katz has had in the past with Nick Avila and still does. And like you said, it's an opportunity for the White Sox to evaluate a pitcher they're relatively familiar with. I think it's always fun to see a team make a move in the Rule 5. I always think about Hector Rondon with the Chicago Cubs back in the early 2010s when they decided to keep him on the roster and he was terrible across a full season, but then turned into a very valuable piece. And that sometimes happens. Also remember Dylan Covey was uh, an option for the White Sox who filled innings. Look, I'm not here to knock Dylan Covey, but that's a rule five selection that saw time in the majors. This is a relief pitcher though. And you mentioned the whip James 55 and a third innings last year between double a and advanced a he had a sub one whip so maybe the white Sox can take advantage of a right-handed pitcher who gets out uh, in their pen so that's the rule five in a nutshell they didn't lose anybody what does that say to you james Did, were you surprised to see that the white Sox uh, didn't have anybody pried away from their uh, their organization not terribly surprised. I mean, I think Cade McClure was the one guy who I thought maybe he, you know, he, he had a pretty successful transition to relief in AAA. He pitched very well. Um, but, you know, I kind of look at the previews put out by other publications. The one that J.J. Cooper and Jeff Ponce do at Baseball America is pretty good. And, you know, usually everybody selected or generally most of the people selected were featured in there and there were no White Sox featured. So, you know, I just kind of assumed that they would be safe there. But, yep, that's uh, not not terribly surprising. The, the last thing that I thought was was interesting about this, like the the couple guys who were kind of known or said as like the top available people in the Rule 5 draft did kind of go off the board right away. So you, you got a team like Washington taking a chance on Thaddeus Ward, who's a, you know, a righty with a lot of upside that was in the Boston system. Like if you're Washington, you just like grab him and throw him in your bullpen or whatever because you're going to be terrible and who cares. And then another guy that was highly regarded, Ryan Noda from the Dodgers. The Dodgers have a million guys that they can't protect. He's just like your classic upper minors, first base type. He's probably better than some major league first baseman right now, but the Dodgers just, they can't protect a guy like that, but Oakland can give him the at-bats, so Oakland took him at number two overall. Yeah, so Cleveland lost a couple of pieces as well. I mean, that's the struggle that teams face when they're building a 40-man roster. You have to make these decisions whether or not you want to protect a player. And, for example, the White Sox did that with, Brian Ramos and Jose Rodriguez this year, despite the fact that they're likely a year away from major league play, um, or maybe they surprise us, who knows? But the fact of the matter is they're on the 40 man roster. The White Sox picked up a right-handed pitcher in the rule five. And that leads me to James, the uh, newest edition of what major league baseball is doing in its draft. And that's the rule four draft, which is the actual amateur draft. They did a draft lottery. What did you think of the entire process, the production of it? What happened? Just fill in the listeners and myself because I'd love to learn more about it too. What happened and what do we need to know about it? Well, I mean, I think like anybody that's watched like the NBA draft lottery for years and years, it was very similar. Um, The only difference is all 18 like non-playoff teams were in the lottery with a shot 
to get into the top six, essentially. So what they did was they like drew for the top six. They didn't show any of that, obviously. So, and then after that, it just went by record from seven to 18. And then on the TV show, you know, they went in like descending order or whatever. So everything held like up through the White Sox. The White Sox were, you know, they were supposed to pick 15th. They will pick 15th, you know, so you're watching this and every team behind them stayed and then you get to them and they're 15 and they stayed. I think the twins were originally slated to pick 13th and they moved up to five. So, you know, when they jump up to five, that means some teams are going to move down. And, you know, there were definitely some losers. Um, The top three teams Washington, Pittsburgh, and Oakland all had a 16.5% chance to get the number one pick. So your bottom three records have the highest percent chance to get the number one pick, but it's still only 16.5%. Oakland took that and fell all the way to the sixth pick overall, which, you know, is kind of brutal because they were maybe the worst team in baseball last year. So, you know, this is just, it's kind of like, it seems like it's an anti-tanking measure and we'll see how it works going forward. But if you're Oakland, I mean, that's a that's a big hit between one and six. I mean, you know, I talk about bonus pools all the time. I mean, Pittsburgh got the number one pick. That pick's probably worth well over $8 million. Oakland at six, it, you know, it's it's just not the same. I mean, it's probably five or five and a half million. And it kind of affects what you can do with the rest of your draft. So Pittsburgh, uh, likely very uh, happy today. Yeah, anti-tanking measures in baseball. It's so hard and it's... In the draft, I think it's a penalty. I think it, I don't know how I feel about that. Just considering the outcomes, and you mentioned the Twins and the A's seeing the most dramatic uh, shift in their draft position. What do you do to combat that? I mean, salary floor? I mean, how, what can you do, you know? So I think the salary floor is the biggest thing, but like we've talked about with the negotiations, like the players, Mm -hmm. the players are never going to accept a salary cap. So, so there's no way that there's going to be a, like, I hate like, you know, like what Steve Cohen's doing, like people get mad at at that. Like, I love it. Like, I think you buy a team like this is, you know what I mean? Like, this is what it should be, especially with the opposite kind of going on sometimes with the team that I root for. I just like, don't think, and this is like a different kind of tangent area with the qualifying offers, but I just like, I don't know why you're penalizing teams for spending money. You should penalize the teams that don't spend money. You know, like you you have to give up draft pick compensation to sign certain free agents. And like, I get it wanting to give compensation to teams that lose free agents. But if you're willing to spend money, I don't really understand why why teams should be penalized for that. And the, you know, going back to the, the draft, like the, the thing that I'm curious to see going forward is some of the rules with the big market clubs. Like it sounds like big market clubs like aren't allowed to pick in the top six in, in, in successive years. Right. So like you would assume that the nationals are a bottom six team again this year, right? Sure. Uh, Yeah. So, so what happens like this year, if the nationals have the worst record in baseball, like supposedly the highest they can pick then next year is seventh, which is just interesting to me. Like how do they, how are they even going to, make sure that happens. You know what I mean? It's just, there's all these like weird rules that we'll see like as the years go on. So I'm just curious to see some of that going forward. Yeah. I think it's just such a significant impact to the future of franchises considering 162 game season is a little different than the NBA. And uh, of course the pay structure with the salary uh, cap in the NBA and all these restrictions regarding draft pick compensation. And like uh, when you, when you make trades and future picks and all of that comes into play and baseball doesn't necessarily have that in the off season. So think about, I mean, just like, think about the twins. Like what I said, like they were, they were, right. they're they supposed to pick 13. Like they were bad last year, you know, but they weren't like 
that bad. Like the Twins could easily pivot and, you know, be in the race for the American League Central next year. Look at the fifth pick in the draft. Like they're going to get a stud player. And so one thing I should mention, like the second round goes back to form. It just goes in the order that it was supposed to be in. Like the Twins have the fifth pick and they'll get the bonus pool space that comes with that pick. So something fairly significant, like six million or so. But then in the second round, their pick is like 13th, you know, in the second round through the 20th. So it, it does go back that way. You don't just get the fifth pick in every round. Well, that's really good information, James, and we'll continue to monitor that. I'd love to talk to somebody about their opinion of the draft, and we're going to have so much draft coverage. And by the way, go to SoxMachine.com. James Fox, co-host here at Future Sox, and of course, Josh Nelson, put together a draft. What was it, a, a preview? It was a uh, a mock, a way too early mock. Yeah, so we didn't do a mock. I'm going to do one for next week, I think, but... You know, we did the top ten. They're the top ten pitchers and top ten position players, just like as of right now, like for next year's class. And obviously, like the college season doesn't even start till February, so like all this mm-hmm. stuff's gonna change. But yeah, just like a snapshot of that class. I mean, look, Sox picking fifteenth. I mean, there's a chance that one of those players is the pick in July. Yeah, so definitely go to SoxMachine.com if you're interested in in some of the talent that anticipate to be among the best in the first round. Really interesting stuff related to the draft. We talked about the Rule 5. The White Sox got a pitcher. We should shout out Marco Patty. Let's do that after we take a timeout. We are listening to the Future Sox podcast. If you want to continue to listen without ads and you know, uninterrupted listening, we appreciate you for doing that. Go to SoxMachine.com, sign up to become a patron, and it really helps us out. I mean, it, it fuels us to continue to put out the content. We haven't missed an episode. We're weekly every Tuesday. 365 days a year, we're following the Chicago White Sox. If you've been following SoxMachine.com, you know the dedication of our staff. So please stay with us. If not, that's cool. I totally get it. We really appreciate your time. Thanks for listening. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we have Marco Patti, Light to Shine, as well as some interesting notes from Baseball America's update on the White Sox top 10 prospects. There's a name that I want to mention and an update on a pitcher that we can get into. So stick with us. You're listening to the Future Sox podcast. All right, James, you've had a lot of opinions about the way that the White Sox maneuver around the international signing period, as well as the way they maneuver around their budget in the international pool. Marco Patti is the lead in that regard. Uh, He is often the one getting credit for signing the names that essentially have built the White Sox farm system in a lot of ways. And we're seeing Luis Robert as a prime example. And that's, that is the example of a major win by the organization and the scouting staff of Marco Patti in the international class. So James, fill us in. What's going on with Marco Patti? What's the award that he's being recognized for? And why do you believe that Marco Patti deserves to be recognized more so than maybe he is uh, among the White Sox organization? Yeah, so we're, you know, we're recording here Wednesday. So Wednesday evening, um, MLB, they give out like a bunch of scouting awards. There's like a Midwest Scout of the Year and Cross Checker of the Year, stuff like that. So Marco Patti of the White Sox is the International Scout of the Year. And, you know, it makes some sense uh, just, I guess, because of his work. I don't know if it's like a lifetime achievement thing or if it's just for, you know, like he was the best international scout this year. But like Marco Patti's really good at his job. And, you know, we always kind of talk about this because I, I feel like the White Sox don't utilize the man like as much as they should, but he's still found a way to supplement their system with just like a bunch of guys that, 
are showing up on lists. I mean, like he gets he gets a lot of credit for Jose Abreu and Luis Robert and even Fernando Tatis Jr., you know, like we've talked about. And But I mean, looking at White Sox top 30 lists, whether it's ours or the update that will be coming at MLB Pipeline or some of the stuff at Baseball America, I mean, you start to see some of the prospects um, and some more that we're going to talk about later. They're all signed by Marco Patti. I mean, you know, you're talking about Oscar Colas, who's going to be in the big leagues next year, right? Lenin Sosa, Brian Ramos, Jose Rodriguez, Norhe Vera. I know you're going to talk about Christian Mena later. Cespedes, Luis Mieses, you know, all these guys, plus more that I didn't even mention, are all signed by Marco Patti. So, you know, I I you know, I've I've been conflicted a little bit with their strategy because I feel like they have one of the best international minds in the business and they don't spend the way that I would like them to. Like I would like them to be in the 16 year old Dominican marketplace more often. You know, they do, they do draft or sign a lot of Cubans, which they've been known for, but I mean, it's tough to argue some of the, you know, some of the strategy when guys like Brian Ramos have really taken off and Jose Rodriguez and some of the other guys that I've mentioned. So, you know, he's done a really good job. It's well-deserved. Um, and there's, you know, there's going to be some more guys coming because January 15th of this next year is the, uh, the international signing day for baseball. So I'm sure we'll be talking about Marco Patti a little bit more. Boy, so many of those names litter the top 10 of the Chicago White Sox farm system in regards to their top prospects. And Baseball America provided an update. Bill Mitchell is awesome. He's in Arizona and he's up close. We talked to him and we're looking forward to talking to him again uh, soon, very soon, to get an update on a lot of these players that he saw firsthand up close, especially a guy like Noah Schultz. I say a guy. He's still a kid. I mean, this a high school left-handed starter projecting at this point of his career. But a lot of positive write-ups so far in his development. And James, we should also give credit to, to James Feekin of The Athletic, who provided updates in theathletic.com for the Chicago White Sox, covering a lot of these prospects and providing updates on a guy like Noah Schultz. And he highlighted the extension, the length that Noah Schultz showcases in his delivery and the way that he's been dominating the level of competition that he's facing. Now, it's not over-the-top type players, those who are above and beyond. I mean, these are these are kind of like mid-level tier players that are competing to prove their worth and show that they're developing at a, at a pace that the organization can see some value. But you see the early results and the write-ups that Baseball America put forth and also the update James Feagan provided early on in, in his career, in his draft season, showing early returns that all of the hype is is at least early coming to fruition. Yeah, there were very like positive reports from people that I talked to, like out of instructs. So, you know, it's like a mid to high 90s fastball and a nasty slider. Like they're trying to get him to throw the change up more. I think, you know, one of the things that interests me is just how much he's going to be able to pitch and how they're going to do it. Like, does he stay out at extended spring training? And then I'm sure he goes to Kannapolis for a little bit. You know, something that was mentioned in, in Fegan's article was it like the implication that 100 innings seems like the target for Schultz? Does that seem uh, that seems right to you, Mike? Like, I just, I mean, I guess getting him to 100 innings in the first year sets him up, you know, for the future to to move further. I just don't know if all 100 of those will be in Kannapolis with the Cannonballers or not. I think 100 innings would be 
very optimistic and ahead of the curve. You, you don't know how a high school pitcher will adjust to full season professional baseball should he, and we assume he will, begin the season there. But if he gets to 100 innings, that means the development is on track and we may see him at the big league level maybe quicker than we anticipated initially when they drafted him. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I mean, I I feel like he's what the top pitching prospect in the system at baseball America and at MLB pipeline. And maybe that continues. So yeah, I mean, I, I, I really want to get eyes on him. You know, I've talked to a lot of people just like in this area that faced him in high school and stuff. And, you know, he's like a unicorn, but you know, now he's in professional baseball. So, so we'll see, but yeah, he's definitely an interesting, um, an interesting guy to track for sure. And, you know, we'll talk to Bill Mitchell pretty soon, just about some more in depth, like, things about fall instructs and what other hitters looked like facing Noah Schultz. So here's a quote that I, I just want to bring to the air from James Feagan. He acquired it from Chris Getz. Getz talking about Noah Schultz here. And here's the quote. I remember a day he was pitching against the Dodgers. On the backfields, he saw upper 90s fastballs. He showed a put-away slider, really nasty changeup. And the players on the Dodgers side were cheering for their teammates just to make contact with any pitch that was being thrown. So that was unique. And it just gives me optimism. It's somebody that is um, obviously highly regarded among the organization or else they wouldn't have taken him where they did at 26 in the first round. First time that we've seen the White Sox select a prep pitcher in the first round uh, ever since I've been following the, the team. And you want to see like it's, it's a risky pick just in its premise, but early returns suggest that this, uh, like you said, James, this, this unicorn could really burst on the scene as long as, you know, the health stays there. And I mean, the stuff, the stuff is just with the extension, the delivery, the fastball slider combination, he develops a third pitch and you got something very exciting. So James, as we move on, feel free to follow up on Noah Schultz if you have anything else left there. But I wanted to throw it to you because, you know, there's a lot to cover in this Baseball America Top 10 update. And, you know, we're going to get to Christian Maynard. I want to save that for another minute or two. I keep teasing it. But anything that caught your eye that you'd like to highlight from Bill Mitchell and his assessment on uh, Baseball America? Well, so, you know, I think the the top three is, is probably going to be the top three everywhere, right? In Colson Montgomery. And, you know, he's, uh, it looks like up to a 55 scouting grade at Baseball America and at, uh, you know, I think at Baseball Prospectus. And so, I mean, Colson Montgomery is his top 50 prospect in baseball right now, which is very exciting. You know, Oscar Colas, I don't know how long he'll be a prospect because I think he's going to be on the White Sox this year. And then Brian Ramos, a guy that, you know, another Cuban signed by Marco Patti that took a big jump is three. You know, and then it gets into some of the pitching. You know, we've we've talked Schultz. And, you know, one of the good things about Schultz that we talked about, too, with the draft class was just that they insulated behind him, right? Like, it's a, it's a gamble, but they they stuck with upside. And then you add guys like Peyton Paulette and Jonathan Cannon behind him. You know, Paulette was, is on the White Sox top 10 prospect list. I think he will be everywhere. He's, you know, an interesting guy because he could have been a top 20 pick in last year's draft and he should pitch, you know, he should be pitching by mid season, I would think. So that's a guy that, you know, if you told me Peyton Paulette was the best pitching prospect in their system at this time next year, I wouldn't be surprised at all. Um, and then staying on the pitching theme, Sean Burke, really close to the majors. It seems like, I mean, he's going to be at Charlotte. He's, you know, right behind uh, Davis Martin as some of the White Sox, 
immediate pitching depth. So, you know, they do have uh, a lot more pitching than maybe they had at, at this time last year. Yeah, I want to stick on the pitching because you mentioned Sean Burke and that stood out to me as well. Norhe Vera fell to eight. And at one point, I believe Norhe Vera was the best prospect in the system. And that was because he had starter projectability. He had an unbelievable fastball. He still does. He has a 70 grade fastball according to Baseball America. But it, it seems like just based on where he's at in his career, the injuries he dealt with, and the amount of innings he's pitched as a professional, he's older as a prospect. This may be a back-end reliever, maybe closer ceiling at this point, which is a little disappointing to me because I was really hoping to see Vera develop as a starting pitcher. But beggars can't be choosers. The guy has unbelievable talent. Sean Burke, meanwhile, moves up to five. And, you know, we talked about Noah Schultz. I mean, that's, that's, I totally understand that. But for Sean Burke, like you mentioned, proximity of the big leagues, he has a multi-pitch repertoire that he's using effectively at a high level in the minor leagues. And he's only a year and a half into his professional career. So we're talking about a guy who may make an impact this season at the big league level. So I totally understand ranking Sean Burke where they did. Yeah. I mean, I think Sean Burke like pitches, I think he probably pitches in the big leagues this year. I mean, if he started, you know, if he's like the best starter at Charlotte, like they're going to need a pitcher at some point, right. That isn't named Davis Martin. And you know, he'll be one of the, one of the next guys in for sure. You know, so, you know, other than Mena, who we're going to get to, what you mentioned about Vera is interesting. I think it's a huge year for him because like in the write-up, it does still kind of talk about the upside, right? And like, I think he, I still think he can start, but it's just all going to be dependent on how many innings he throws this year. He just didn't throw very many innings last year. He's going to have to throw a lot to stay on that trajectory. Now, if he can't do it, you know, then you have a decision to make because they could pivot and turn him into a high leverage like reliever and he could pitch at the back end of a bullpen like in the big leagues, like probably quickly. Like I mm-hmm. I would imagine if they decided to, you know, throw in the towel, I guess, in air quotes and just make him a reliever, then I think it, it totally changes because I think the development path just becomes much quicker. Like, look, if if they if you told them like, okay, he's gonna be a really good starter but it might take two and a half more years. I think they'd be like, okay, that's fine, right? But he's not going to be a starter. Like, I think they would just like accelerate it and get him to the high minors, and he'd just throw fastballs and forkballs like crazy, and you know, and be. I mean, it's a seventy grade fastball, and the forkball is really good too. But he just he has to pitch, and he he just has not pitched enough. The fastball tops out at ninety nine, and we're looking at fastball velocity. Related to the next man we're talking about here, and that's Christian Mena. And Mena has been somebody, and this is so fun, James, is you know, we're following all these players. There's been multiple seasons now where we're keeping an eye on these top prospects and multiple lists at futuresocks.com. We're seeing these names repeated, and we're at a point now where it's not make or break, but it's this is an opportunity to take a next step, or we're going to f- figure out more or less the trajectory of this player. Uh, we're going to get a pretty good outline of what's to come moving forward. And Christian Mena, I think, is a wonderful case of a success story in the White Sox development department because this is a player who dominated at the low-level minors and then made a jump quickly and still had success, although there were glaring issues once he did get to Double A, It was a matter of Fastball velocity not necessarily being uh, at, at league average. And, you know, hitters are able to catch up on that pitch because 
they can sit back on his breaking ball, which is his best offering. According to Baseball America, his curveball is at 60. A 60-grade curveball versus a fastball at 55. Now, his fastball is above average at this point because he added velocity. We were talking about it on multiple podcasts. It totally changes the game for this right-handed pitcher because the White Sox believe that Mena is a, a fast riser and somebody that they're targeting as a future starter, a high-end starter at this point. He's got multiple pitches, fastball, curveball, slider, changeup. Control is still a little wonky. This is a 20-year-old who pitched at a high level in professional baseball and had success. And the things that we were concerned about was his ability to gain velocity on the fastball, and we're seeing it. Bill Mitchell says he's topping out around 96, 97 miles an hour and sitting 92, 94. That is much better than 90, 92. It is a total game changer for somebody who I believe is next to Noah Schultz, next to Sean Berg, just a little bit a ways away because of the age and still, there is some development left in Chris John Mayne's game. The whole point of this, though, is development. We're seeing improvements, and it's just got me optimistic. Because when you watch Mayna in highlights or various videos, of just go ahead and look for yourself. Let me know your perspective on what you see in his delivery and the stuff. The breaking ball is off the charts, and everybody recognizes Mana for the breaking ball, but he threw it at such a high rate at the low minors, and that's part of the reason why he had so much success when you look at the numbers. The numbers jump off the page at you, especially in single A. That's, like I said, because of his breaking pitch. I can't wait to see what Christian Mana develops into. I'm looking forward to what he does, most likely in double A Birmingham this season. And Man, you're talking about by next year as a 21-year-old, maybe as a 22-year-old, he's on the south side pitching for the Chicago White Sox. Based on where his trajectory stands at this moment in December, I'm getting all hyped up over Christian Maine, and I can't help it because there's something here. So, like, super interesting, um, Christian Maine, obviously. And look, I think it's funny, like, I've talked to people at Baseball America who kind of said that we were the first ones that tipped them off to Christian Mena. And it, which is funny to me because Ben Badler works for them, right? But Ben Badler mentions him to us like when he's a 16-year-old and you know told us to keep an eye on him and I think he was like 150 pounds then. And then he, you know, he pitches okay like in the Dominican Summer League and really pitched well in Arizona and then all of a sudden last year like he really took off. You know, I think some of the big things he's 6'2" 15 now i mean we we had kind of talked about before he was like a 150 pound kid before and one note from baseball america he's one of five teenage pitchers to throw at least 100 innings pitched in 2022 the 380 era and a 29 percent strikeout rate the only guy better was their minor league pitcher of the year andrew painter who was you know the the best high school pitcher in last year's draft so gaining 40 pounds the, the fastball's really ticked up. The curveball was plus, and he's only going to be 20 years old for all of next season, probably pitching at double-A Birmingham. So Christian Mena, very exciting. I love it. It makes me so happy that this player is developing in the White Sox farm system. And the fact that you mentioned Ben Badler, yes, absolutely correct. It was among the first podcast that we recorded on futuresox.com. And Ben Baller is one of our first uh, people that we interviewed and experts talked about, you know, the, the farm system. It was Mena that he highlighted. I just, I, I love it. I'm so excited 
for this player in particular because I think there's tremendous upside and then the results so far have been so glaring that I can't help but uh, you know share it with the listeners here so I'm sorry if I'm misleading you a little bit here with my excitement but I just here it is there it is what, what can I say James couple more notes we got to wrap this podcast up but I know you have some Marco Patty stuff yeah so just like going back to kind of wrap around to Patty here because these are like kind of all of his guys James Fegan in, in his latest, you know, talks about Loydell Chapei, I think we were told, right? So, Nailed it. you know, I think this guy could really take off this year. I mean, he was great in the DSL, but he was 20 years old, just like down there playing against children on dirt fields. I wouldn't be surprised if he's at Winston and then we see him in double A. From what I've heard, the White Sox think that he's really good. And, you know, I think I gave him like a Rugnet Odor comp just for like the body type. And look, like Odor hasn't been great in the big leagues, but I mean... If if Chape is even a big leaguer, like it's it's big for 500k out of Cuba last year, you know one of their other premium signings, Eric Hernandez, was mentioned as well. He did not have a good year in the DSL, but the Sox seem to be very excited about him. He should be stateside too. And then one last thing, you know, I feel like we at Future Sox we were a little bit down on Wilfred Varis because mm-hmm. like the numbers were good, right? And it seemed like a lot of power over hit and I was kind of under the impression that it would be first base DH only. So I was just like apprehensive with a guy with a K rate that high, but he's one of the few guys who went to double a, you know, from low a and actually like was pretty good in Birmingham. And I think the biggest key to this, he's, he's a left fielder now. And like, so if he's a left fielder and he's okay out there, it definitely changes the profile. Like he's, maybe a top 20 prospect in the system if he can play the outfield. Like it, it's just like a big difference from maybe outfielder to definite first baseman. Like we've talked about that, like just what it does, right? It's like the difference between him and like a DJ Gladney type where it's like, yeah, he's pretty good, but at first like you have to be awesome. So just something to keep an eye on with Wilfred Varis. I think he's, he's a guy that we'll see either at high A or double A. And if he's playing the outfield all the time, you know, it could be another one of Marco Patti's former signings that kind of rises through the system next year. I'm glad you mentioned Wilfred Veras because I think I've, I haven't made him an afterthought. I just haven't been paying close enough attention. And that's mainly because of a lot of the things that you just mentioned related to the numbers, the raw stats. But when I saw the body type and some of the highlights of him moving on the field, that dude is big. And that's exciting. So I'd love to see that continue to translate. Luis Mieses doesn't get enough love on this podcast. That's a player who's going to, I think, make an impact this year. He he could he's he's a candidate to you know take the next step in his development and actually play a part very quickly at AAA and maybe even the big leagues if all things go well. So shout out to Luis Mieses. And this is all a part of the conversation of where the White Sox stand as an organization, right? They made a change in the scouting and development department, made a change in Mike Shirley leading the draft and amateur scouting. And it's important to note the development and the investment in biomechanical engineering the uh, analytical, the analytically inclined methods to understand what they really have in their prospects. This is, you know, maybe it's it's primitive to this point in Major League Baseball, but the White Sox have been behind the curve for so long that now that they're finally doing these things, it helps them get better overall. And when you talk about the way that they manage their their budget and the finances within. 
you better be able to develop talent. And these are some of the signs that suggest that over the next few seasons, we'll see the fruits of the labor because you got to be able to see the results or else fans are not going to buy in. And that's why when we speak to you, the Future Sox listener, we want to be as transparent and objective as possible when it comes to covering this organization because it's changed. We understand what's happening at the big league level, but things at the minor league level is much, much different than what we're used to. Project Birmingham was unique. Jerry's still out on how successful it was. They're doing a campaign of promoting uh, via video. You can look for yourself. They're promoting it on social media to see exactly what they're doing. James, I just I wanted to take that moment to recognize the White Sox and what they're doing organizationally outside of the big league level, because we know the big league level was a giant mess over the last three seasons. Yeah. Like I always say, I think I often say like, you know, that I'm not jealous of Jim and Josh having to talk about the big league team twice a week. Right. We, we do sometimes, but we don't have to do it all the time. So that's where like stuff like the rule five draft and the draft lottery, like we get to talk about minor league stuff, which is good. But you know, I will say anybody that listens to this podcast has heard a lot about Project Birmingham and some of the players that were there. One good thing with the White Sox video department, they released like, what was it, like a seven minute video? I think it's on Twitter and their YouTube page. Just like some of the behind the scenes stuff from Project Birmingham. I thought it was pretty cool. There's there's a lot of Colson Montgomery and a lot of Oscar Colas. And, you know, like we're all going to see Oscar Colas very, very soon. But I just, you know, that that seven minutes is worth your time just to like see some of those guys in game action and messing around on the field and practice and some of the coaches and staff and stuff too. So I would, I would check that out. Anybody, anybody that's interested in this podcast and listening to it would probably have some interest in that. That's James Fox. We're going to have another episode of the future Sox podcast dropping in a few days. We'll have a guest. We're going to talk a little bit of big league club because I mean, we have to, it's the winter meetings, the off season, the White Sox have holes to fill and there's not a lot of options internally at the ready. Hopefully though, you know, you've been listening to this episode. Thanks for making it to this point, kind of leading, uh, leading you on to believe that hopefully soon some of these prospects are going to develop and make an impact on the big league level because that's where they're at right now. They're investing in internal options and then trying to fill holes where they can at the big league level at a conservative pace. And it's just, it hasn't worked and it hasn't worked largely because they don't have a lot of backup outside of the top prospects that debuted and ultimately graduated from lists. And you see the rest of the farm system and they're a ways away. And now we're seeing where they're at now entering 2023 they're getting better. It's just, it takes time and it's, you know, unfair to White Sox fans because we were sold on the window and the window was kind of jacked up and we don't have to get back into all of that nonsense. God, I hate it. I hate it so much. James, great stuff. Really looking forward to the next episode. I could talk White Sox all day and uh, we'll, we'll probably do that the next time, but until next time for James Fox, my name's Mike Rankin. Thanks so much for listening to the future Sox podcast. This has been a product of the blue wire network and SoxMachine.com. We'll talk to you all next Tuesday.